few weeks ago, my wife Jennifer came down with the flu and was bedridden for a couple of days. So she did something she rarely does. She sat and watched TV. And she was watching this show called Love It or List It. Are you familiar with this show on HGTV? It's a show about home renovation where these people go in and they renovate a place for a family. And then at the end of the show, the family gets to decide, do they love it and want to keep it, want to stay there, or do they want to list it, put it on the market in hopes of making a profit? And Jennifer, after a couple of episodes, she makes this comment to me. She's like, they never list it. They always love it. They always want to stay in the house. And you know, that makes sense if we think about it, because we love transformation stories. I mean, we are suckers for transformation stories. Nobody after the transformation just wants to walk away from it. We want to marvel at it. We want to remain in it. That's why if you watch HGTV, for example, almost every show on that channel is a renovation show. It's a transformation show. If you watch daytime talk shows, I've been told, if you watch daytime talk shows, you will see uh, they always do uh, makeovers. Somebody comes in, they, they've got frumpy clothes, they've got a, a, a 40, they've had the same haircut for 40 years, things like that, and they give them a, a renovation, right? They give them a makeover. We see the before and the after, and everybody claps. Isn't it wonderful? Uh, every, every politician runs on a platform of transformation, right? We're going to shake the thing up. We're going to transform the way things are done and lead us into a better future, um, we, and we're suckers for that. Everybody wants transformation. Here's, the, here's the, the reality, though. Most promises of transformation don't actually pan out. I'm sure you've noticed this. Or maybe something will last for a little while, but then it kind of fizzles. And what we come to find is that most, most of what we call transformation is actually just improvement. There might be some improvement in the facade, in the appearance, but nothing's actually changed, right? But y'all, when we come to the Bible... When we come to Colossians 1, what we read today, we discover a faith that promises genuine transformation, a faith that talks about true transformation, true and lasting change, not in appearance, not necessarily in circumstances, not in personal health and wealth. That's not the promise. The promise is a transformation in our relationship to God, the most important thing that there is, the most important relationship we can ever have. When we talk about what, how we relate to God, there's a change in position and identity that lasts both now and forever. That's what the Bible promises us when it talks about the Christian faith. And right here at the end of chapter 1, as Paul writes, he is showing us, uh, if you were here with us last week, we looked at the supremacy of Christ in the middle of chapter 1, this grand and wonderful picture of Jesus, that Jesus is divine and eternal and powerful. He creates all things. He sustains all things. He's head of the church. But Paul wants to show us how that truth actually applies to reality, to our lives, to our coming and going. Because what we believe as Christians is not meant to be compartmentalized, something that we keep uh, kind of on the shelf, ready to dust off at a moment's notice. No. What we believe has the power to change everything. And so Paul, as he talks about Christ, wants to show us how Jesus applies his grace to us. And that's what the end of, of Colossians 1 is here to do. So let, let's look here. We've got a lot to cover. We're going to try to cover it fairly briefly. But here Paul is going to close out this wonderful chapter by reminding us of how this thing works itself out. True transformation. Okay? 
So verse 21, we just read it, but let's read it again. Verse 21, Paul speaks to us about something past. He says, although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he, Jesus, has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. That right there is a scripture worth memorizing. I'd encourage you to to consider that this week, to put it into your mind, into your heart forever. Um, Paul does this often in his letters. If If you read through the letters of Paul, we see this in Romans, we see it in Ephesians, we see it in Titus. Paul gives us a before and after picture of the Christian life. Paul is not interested only in today and the future. He wants to always constantly, wants to take us back to what we were. And this is so important for us. Because when we understand the Christian message, so often there's this temptation in me and maybe in you to think that the Christian message is, we're all pretty good people and we're just trying to be better people. We're all pretty nice and we're just trying to be nicer. And then that's the essence of what Christianity is. That's what a lot of people assume Christianity to be. But no, the message is, and Paul makes it clear every opportunity he gets, the message is that we were spiritually dead people in need of resurrection, in need of being brought back to life. That's the Christian message. And so Paul does for the Colossians right here something that we desperately need, and I think we need on a daily basis, always to remind ourselves of what we've been saved from. And he says it, you were once alienated from God, meaning you were totally estranged, as far from God as as humanly possible. That was our reality. And what is more, Paul says, you were hostile in mind and engaged in evil deeds. Our lostness was comprehensive. It affected all of us. There's no such thing as a person who's a little bit lost spiritually. There's no such thing as a person who's just, I'm just mildly misinformed on some things. I'm just slightly behaviorally corrupt and I need a little sweeping up. No, what Paul says is we are comprehensively lost apart from Christ, hostile in mind, internally, and engaged in evil deeds in our bodies, externally, both inward and outwardly, we're lost. Now, I want to make a quick point on this because I know this is true for me and maybe for a lot of us in this room. You grew up in church and with a good Christian family, perhaps, and you, you always remember believing in God and being probably a fairly nice person. You don't have a long criminal record, perhaps, or you don't have, there's, there's, you know, you look at your life and you say, man, there's, you know, I've done pretty well for myself, and I can't remember a time where I was ever hostile toward God. I've always believed. I've always loved God. Um, But y'all, there's more than one way to be lost. Uh, A couple of weeks ago, we looked at the story of the prodigal son, that great story, Luke chapter 15, where Jesus tells a story about two sons, two sons of one father, Both sons are lost. That's the point of the story, but they're lost in different ways. One son is lost because he breaks all the rules. He rejects his father. He's hostile. He's outwardly hostile. He runs away. He wastes all the father's good blessings. And it's obvious to everyone, this kid is bad. This kid's lost. But there's another brother, his older brother, who Jesus says is also lost, but for a different reason. He keeps all the rules. He doesn't leave home. 
He, by all accounts, is very faithful and diligent, but Jesus reveals through that story that although on the surface he's a good kid, he's actually self-righteous. He's self-righteous, which means he believes that his good behavior is what justifies him before God. And so what Jesus points out in that story is that it is, it's just as hostile uh, to be self-righteous as it is to break all the rules. The good religious person externally is potentially just as hostile toward God as the very nasty person who everybody knows is, is wrong. That was the case in that story, and that's the case for us too. Listen, just because you grew up in a positive Christian environment does not exclude you from the need of saving grace. And I'll say this, if you did grow up in a good Christian home, going to church, reading the Bible, then you need to praise God for that. That is a gift of grace. Not everybody has that advantage. That's a gift. Um, but that does not eliminate your need for grace. You are lost and in need of Christ, just like everybody else, right? That's Paul's point. It's comprehensive. It affects all of you. It affects all of us, right? And when Paul talks about this lostness, he's talking about, y'all, a fixed condition. This is not something you and I can change. This is not a pit that you and I can climb our way out of. We are fixed in this reality, and therefore we need something outside of us to change it. Paul says we are alienated, hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet, you see in verse 22 how it begins, yet, whenever you see the word yet or but or however in the Bible, usually that's a good sign. In this case, it's a very good sign. Something terrible is wrong with us, verse 21, yet, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death. You, you notice y'all that the solution to our sin problem comes from the mind of God. It's, it's executed by the grace of God. This is not something you and I would have come up with. Y'all, if, if, um, if I had written the Bible, it would have been a lot shorter, for one. I don't have the patience to, to write that much. If I had written the Bible, I would not have solved our problem like this. Think about our problem, as Paul just mentioned it. We are alienated from God. We're far from God. We're hostile toward God and we're engaged in sinful things, right? We're far from God, we're hostile toward God, we're sinful. Well, let's solve that problem. Get close to God, stop being so mean to God, and stop being a bad person. Be good. Get close to God, love God, stop sinning. That's the solution, right? That's what I'd come up with. That's what most of religion is, by the way, but not God. When God chooses to solve this problem for us, our lostness, this fixed condition that we find ourselves in, Paul says that God solves that problem not with our cooperation. He solves it for us. It says Jesus has now reconciled you to God. We've been saved passively. His activity has saved us with no good work of our own to contribute to it. He saved you. He reconciled you through his fleshly body, through his death. So despite our alienation, our hostility, our sin, Jesus, through his death, has bound us together with God forever. I made this point last week. When, when we've, been, we've been given peace with God, that literally means, in the Greek, we've been bound up together with him, like a string of Christmas lights that you can never get untangled. That's us. In a positive way, that's us. We can never become untangled from him. We've been bound up through his blood shed on the cross. And I, you know, I, we, we preach this every Sunday, but I'm going to say it again, okay? 
despite your alienation, your hostility, your sin, Jesus has bound you together with God forever through his blood shed on the cross, and that is a gift you receive by faith. Jesus has brought us near to God. He's given us peace with God. He's forgiven every sin. Isn't that good news? But if it's possible, it gets even better. Paul isn't done. You look at the middle of verse 22. In order to, with the result that, he would present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Uh, Oftentimes we go to weddings. When the bride walks down the aisle at a wedding, oftentimes there's somebody with her. You know who it is? Dad. A lot of times at a wedding, dad walks his daughter down the aisle because he is going to present her to the congregation and to her groom. And almost always that dad is trembling with pride. He's beaming because this is, he's about to present the very best part of him. She's the apple of his eye. She's adorned in white. It's a beautiful picture. And y'all, the scripture paints that same picture about the church. When, when, the, when the Bible talks about the church, we are, we are considered a bride adorned in purity, presented to Jesus Christ that we might be made to be in union with him forever. And this is the transformation that the Bible talks about here. This is not mere spiritual improvement that we experience. This is a fundamental change in who we are in our relationship to God. So y'all, listen, to have faith in Jesus, Paul says, it means that both now and forever, God does not just put up with you. He doesn't just forgive you the bare minimum and let you in heaven through the back door. No, to have faith in Christ means that God esteems you, presents you as righteous and holy, without blemish, perfect. Are we really those things in how we think, act, and behave? No, we know better. I know better. I'm none of those things. I'm not without blemish. I'm not perfect and spotless and pure. But it's not up to me. It's not up to you. You don't contribute to your salvation. God esteems it so. When he looks upon you through the lens of Jesus Christ, he accounts his righteousness to you and makes it your own so that now and forever, when God looks at you, he sees perfection through the shedding of the blood of his Son. This is the transformation God produces in us before our behavior ever changes before our act ever gets cleaned up. God affects this salvation as a free gift of his grace. You are given a new position, a new identity, a new reality. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, a new creation. You've been reconciled to God. You've been unified, united with Jesus Christ. And y'all, you know, I I mentioned a minute ago, our, our, our lostness was fixed. You can't save yourself. Well, now this, the same is true over here. This salvation we've been given, it's fixed, and you cannot lose it. What Christ has done for you is done. It is finished, and it cannot be lost, diminished. It cannot be taken away. That's good news. We ought to end right there, but we're not going to. That would make for too short of a sermon. My ego would not allow for that, okay? Um, So I just said that this is a fixed condition, right? But then you look at verse 23. Really interesting. Paul seems to give a condition here. He starts out verse 23 with if. 
If all these things are true, if indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you've heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Is Paul placing a condition on our salvation right here? As if to say, all these wonderful things Jesus has done are yours as long as you maintain a certain level of faithfulness. It's contingent upon you. You can lose this if you don't remain committed to the Lord. Is that what he's saying? Because there are branches of Christianity that believe that. We're not one of them. Harvest Church, we don't subscribe to that. We believe that true Christians are true Christians, and we will remain in Christ forever. And here's, here's what Paul's doing here. And all, uh, the vast majority of commentators agree on this. This is not Kyle's random opinion. Paul is doing two things at once. He's stating a necessary condition, if indeed, if indeed you remain steadfast, which is a necessary condition, Christians have to remain in the faith, but he's also stating a positive assumption to go with it. Necessary condition with a positive assumption. It is necessary that to be a Christian, you continue in your faith and your hope in the gospel. We're not supposed to be driven away from our hope in Christ. But for Paul, this is a positive assumption. He, Paul is not concerned about the Colossians here. If you read through uh, up to this point in chapter 1, he voices no concern in this book about their salvation. He's not fretting over whether they're legitimate Christians or not. He's confident. He's rejoicing in their, in their faith. And what he's saying is that, that, that Colossians, you, you are going to continue in your faith as a mark of true Christianity. It's a positive assumption. Uh, it's what we call the perseverance of the saints. That's the fancy doctrinal word for it, the perseverance of the saints. Everyone who has truly come to Christ in faith will remain in Christ. We may have peaks and valleys, of course, we all do, but no one will ever be set aside. God will not ever disqualify you from his presence, and you cannot disqualify yourself, and you won't because you, you don't. Listen, um, some, of, some of us need to hear this. You don't maintain your salvation day by day through the keeping of rules through, the, through keeping your head up above some imaginary spiritual line. You don't maintain your salvation. It is a free gift granted to you through the grace of Jesus Christ. Remember, Jesus alone purchased and secured your salvation, presenting you to himself an eternal promise, holy and blameless, perfect and beyond reproach. Paul is not concerned that we're going to lose that. Paul doesn't believe we can. And so he states a necessary condition. Do Christians remain in the faith? Yes, we should, we must. But we will if our faith is genuine because we've been made new. And so Paul is simply exhorting us, keep your feet firmly planted upon him. He is the firm foundation. You don't need to be looking over your shoulder wondering, did I lose it today? Did I do enough today? That's not what saves you to begin with. And that's not what keeps you. He will save you, he will keep you, and you will maintain your faith in him because he's given you a new heart. So y'all, the, the, the grace of Jesus transforms us it really in, in ways beyond our comprehension. I hope that as we walk through Colossians 1, you haven't just mentally checked off the boxes. One for one, two for two, three for three, old stuff. No, this is beyond us. I mean, it's really meant for us to be like an endlessly deep ocean 
You can swim to the bottom, you can, you can, but you'll never get there. I mean, you'll never reach the bottom. It's so wonderful and rich. But what Paul, what Paul wants to communicate to us here is this. What has been accomplished for us, uh, if you want to think about it like in the spiritual realm, in the intangible unseen, you can't see uh, grace in some sense, but you see the outcome, you see the response, you see the implications, right? And so Paul wants to show us that this is not just ethereal somewhere out there. This happens and it changes who we are. It changes how we live. And Paul does this in an interesting way. He wants to show us how it's changed him. Paul will do this fairly often. He does it in Philippians quite a bit. In 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, he gives his personal testimony. He does it in Acts. His personal testimony of who he was and how he's been changed, okay? And I want you to, to be challenged by this today. Paul is, I'll say this, Paul is an apostle. There's a uniqueness to his office and his position that we don't share in an apples-to-apples kind of way, okay? And yet, Paul is a sinner saved by grace, a human being called for the sake of God's glory in the gospel, and that is all true for us too, okay? And in that sense, it is apples-to-apples. So we don't put ourselves in Paul's place in every single possible way as an apostle, no. But as a man, yes, he was just like us. And so we should be encouraged by this. Look at verse 24. How was Paul changed by this grace? He says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of Jesus' body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. One of the most amazing things God does, he did it for Paul, he'll do it for us. God will transform our view of suffering. Oh my goodness. He did it for Paul. In, In the ancient times, uh, and this, of course, is true for a lot of people still, but in ancient times, the, un- the view of suffering was this. If you are suffering, it's because you're under a divine curse. You've done something wrong, and there's some God, whether big G God or lowercase g, some God, there's some God out there who's mad at you, and that's why you're suffering. You got yourself into this mess, right? Um, but you see what Paul says in verse 24? I rejoice in my suffering for your sake. He doesn't view it as a curse at all. He understands that it's from God. It's for the purpose of God's glory and for the purpose of the church. He says, I'm suffering for your sake, for the sake of the Colossians and for the churches that Paul had ministered to. I'm suffering for the glory of God and for the grace of the gospel. God has changed his view on this. He'll do it for us. We need him to. Um, So what does it mean? You, You probably noticed this. Maybe you've noticed this before. What does Paul mean when he says... My suffering is filling up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. That is a strange statement right there. It's an oft-debated verse. Um, Here's what it doesn't mean. It does not mean that somehow Jesus' sufferings were insufficient. Jesus didn't suffer enough, and so Paul has got to suffer and fill in the gaps. Absolutely not. That would nullify everything else Paul says in, in his other letters. Um, what Paul is saying, and he, I mean, he uses an interesting phrase, something that we don't see anywhere else in the Bible. What Paul is saying is that to be a Christian, and especially in his case as an apostle, he is sharing in the sufferings of Christ. If you see Paul's testimony back in Philippians chapter 3, Paul says that he was striving to attain to the sufferings of Jesus. It was like a badge of honor for him to suffer for Christ and to share in the sufferings of Christ. Jesus said it this way in John. 
If the world hates you, it's because it hated me first. If you were of the world, the world would love you. The world would love its own. But you are not of the world. I have chosen you out of the world, and therefore the world will hate you. You will suffer. It's why Jesus said elsewhere in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are you when men persecute you on my account. Blessed? Yeah. Jesus says blessed. For so they persecuted the prophets before you, and great will be your reward. Listen, you are uniting yourself with me when you suffer for my sake. To be a Christian, Paul says, is to share in the sufferings of Christ, to fill up what is lacking. The world will never get tired of persecuting Christianity. And so our lives, until we go home to be in glory, our lives will be lives of hardship and suffering. And yet Paul sees it, what? Not as sorrow, not as a curse. He sees it as joy. God has transformed his view of suffering. All of us need that to happen if we're going to make it through. God's got to change the way we see it. But look at verse 25. Not not just his view of suffering, but his view of stewardship. He says, Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your behalf, for for your benefit, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God, That is the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Oh, there's so much in there. Uh, Okay. Uh, Paul's view of suffering has changed, but also his view of stewardship. We know what it is to be a steward. You carry something as one who is responsible for the, the maintaining of it, the keeping up of it. You're taking care of something for the sake of someone else, on behalf of someone else. Before Paul's conversion, if you read through Acts chapter 8, um, if you read through, oh, uh, Paul's personal testimony that he gives toward the end of Acts, he gives it actually two different times, and then again in Galatians. The Apostle Paul speaks of himself as one whose life purpose was to destroy the Christian church. Paul was no friend of Christians. He was their sworn enemy. And yet when he came to be a follower of Jesus, all of a sudden, Paul's entire life was given to the growth of the church. Not its destruction, its flourishing through the sharing of the gospel. As one who shared the mystery of God's grace. Now again, another interesting turn of phrase here. When Paul talks about the gospel being a mystery, a secret, um, My understanding of what he means here is that there's something about the gospel that could only originate in the mind of God, of course. We wouldn't have come up with this. And therefore, it's God's gift to give the world. This is not something that we can manufacture, seek out, and find apart from God's intervention. And so when Paul speaks about the good news of Jesus Christ, he speaks of it here almost like there's a door that's been locked up, closed up. And only at the right time, the time of God's gracious choosing, was the door swung open in Jesus Christ, and all the riches of God's grace and mercy were opened up to us. That at the coming of Jesus in his death and resurrection, Paul says, the mystery has been now manifested, revealed. The veil has been lifted, and now we can see clearly the purposes of God that he's revealed to us in Jesus. So now, Paul says, at the right time, according to God's gracious choice, the gospel has been opened up to all people. And so part of the riches that he's talking about here is this, that you Colossians, that us 
Jacksonians, I'm not sure if that's the Jacksonites, whatever we are, that we Gentiles who were far from God, not of God's chosen people, Israel, but the leftovers, the castouts, us, that we have been opened up to that very same door of all the treasures of Jesus Christ forever, that the mystery has been made known to us, and the mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Not you improved upon, but you transformed by a grace that is not your own. That is the richness of the gospel that we enjoy. Paul says past generations did not know it, or if they knew it, they knew it only in shadows. We get to enjoy the fullness, the brightness of all of it. So Jesus has transformed Paul personally, spiritually, his view of suffering, his stewardship, but he didn't, but Paul didn't leave that on the spiritual shelf. It's nice to have, I'll go to heaven one day. He applied it to his life. God applied it to his life. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, God's grace toward me did not prove in vain. It worked itself out in his life. And we see that at the end of chapter 1. I love, one of my, one of my hallmark verses right here, verse 28 and 29. And we proclaim him. That right there is enough of a legacy, isn't it? All by itself. We, the apostles, Paul says, we proclaim Christ. Admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. Paul had made it his purpose, his life's purpose, to proclaim Jesus, to magnify Jesus, to share Jesus, to teach of Jesus, in the hopes that everybody who ever rubbed shoulders with Paul, everybody who ever heard him speak, would come to hear the gospel, to know Jesus Christ by faith, and to be made complete. And y'all, this carries the very same idea that we read earlier this morning, that Jesus, by his grace, his bloodshed on the cross, he presents us to himself, holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Paul is saying, I get to be a little instrument to that ultimate purpose. I get to be a little part of that, that I, by sharing the grace of God, will present people complete in Christ. Paul doesn't save them. Paul doesn't complete them. But by his ministry, he gets to play a part in showing forth that he gave his life for the ultimate grace that other people might know Jesus as well that he might present them to Christ as those complete in, 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 uh, by faith. And so he says, To this end I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. The way this ends is so precious. Paul says, I'm sweating. I'm exerting myself. He is stretching himself to the limit. He takes no days off. And yet he says, not I, but Christ in me. His power, which mightily works within me. Paul gets none of the credit. He doesn't want it. He says, this is, a, this is a divine strength that gives me the ability to do everything I do. I'm sweating real sweat, Paul says, but it's all to the glory of God. He's the one doing the work. You know, we, we've covered a lot today, okay, I know, but um, come back with me to this main central point, what we started with, the concept of transformation. I'll be honest with you guys. I like the idea of transformation more than I actually like the thing itself. I don't necessarily want day by day to be transformed. 
I just, I, I just would like to be improved. And I think a lot of us are probably this way. Transformation sounds awesome, but it's hard. It's all-encompassing. Things about me may change that, frankly, I'm comfortable with, and I don't want to change. I don't know if I want to be transformed. I just want to be improved, right? And, and, and most of us are this way. If I could just improve my appearance, if I could just improve my financial security, my job situation, if I could improve my exercise habits, if I could just improve my marriage, if I could improve spiritual things, if I could improve my Bible reading, if I could improve my prayer life, if I could improve my church attendance, well, wouldn't that be great? And, and frankly, we'd be thrilled with those things, wouldn't we? Improvement in those areas? My goodness, what a great thing that would be. It's not a bad thing. But I hope we see it today at the end of Colossians 1. It's, it should be clear to us, Jesus Christ did not come into the world to oversee our improvement. That was not his ultimate aim. Jesus did not come to make good people into better people, to make nice people into nicer people. Jesus did not come to help me along the way as I pursue my own ambitions. Jesus Christ came into the world to exercise his divine power to save us and to make us something we otherwise could never be to bring true transformation, both in our position before God. He has changed everything. We are now esteemed as righteous. And he also came to transform our posture in how we live, our purpose, that now nothing else is ever the same. Um, you notice what Paul says about himself. Everything about his position has been changed. Once an enemy of God, an enemy of the church, now an apostle of it a child of God. And he says, and therefore I strive with all the energy that Christ provides because he has given me a new purpose, a new position and a new purpose. I said this at the beginning, most promises of transformation never pan out because it's a much better idea than it is a reality. Things generally don't really change. Or maybe they change for a little while, but then we always kind of revert to the mean. But y'all, this is different. This is different. If it's not different, then we're wasting our time. But what Christ gives us in his grace through the gospel, it's different. This is the grace of God applied to human beings. This is not something you and I manufacture. This is something given to us from on high by a God who loved us while we were yet sinners. And it really does change everything. It's meant to change everything. And so my encouragement here as we close, as we pray, is this, that we would pray on two fronts. What we just said, that, that positionally, if Jesus Christ has reconciled you through his fleshly body through death to present you before him forever, holy and blameless and beyond reproach, then there's nothing you can do to add to that. There's no work to be done. It is finished, and you can rest in that reality. You can cast away all self-righteousness. There's no need for that. It's a gift to receive. It's been given in full. You can rest. And some of us, we need to rest in that truth today. And at the very same time, not a contradiction, we strive with everything that is within us. We push and we sweat and we exert ourselves for a new purpose that we've been given, to glorify him in making his gospel seen and known in the world around us. There is no contradiction there because our new position means I'm not doing this to earn anything. I'm simply doing all that I do in response to what I've been given. Paul is such a precious example to us because although he was an apostle, he was just a man.
And frankly, he was probably a lot worse before Christ than you and I were. And maybe that should give us some encouragement too. He considered himself the least of all the saints, unworthy to be an apostle, the foremost of all sinners. Paul understood what he was, but that did not dictate what he became. Because God changed his position, God could also change his purpose, and he can do the same for us. Let's pray for that. Lord, this is a big prayer, a bold prayer, it really is, but Paul's not afraid to pray big, bold prayers. He prayed earlier that that we would be filled up with all the knowledge of God, to know your will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, to live in a manner worthy of you and to bear fruit in every good work, to be filled with all the power and the strength which you supply. Paul's not afraid, Lord, to, to ask for a lot from you because he knows how big you are. And I pray this morning for us, I pray for myself, that we would have this mentality to see you as so wonderful, so lofty, so glorious, that nothing we ask would be too great. And Lord, I know when I look at the mirror, I see a mess of a human being. I know what I am. I know my own laziness and insecurity and pride and and my own propensity to, to put my hope in myself. I know it. It's always in front of me. And so I pray for me, I pray for us, Lord, change us in an ongoing way, Lord. Continue to bring about the transforming grace of Jesus in our lives. We don't want to just be better than we were yesterday. I pray, Lord, that we would be truly different, made new, and that what you've given us in position that it would take uh, the, the form of purpose, that we would give our whole life to knowing you, honoring you, glorifying you, and making you known, just as Paul did. Father, I trust that for us today, um, a lot of us are still striving to earn what you have given for free. We're thinking we've got to earn it, or at least we've got to maintain it. And I pray, Lord, that you'd encourage us today that we simply need to stand upon it. Stand upon what we've been given in Christ. And from there, Lord, live a life that glorifies you. Um, I pray, Lord, that we don't make it sound easier than it is. But I pray, Lord, that today you'd give us a step in that direction. Hmm. Thank you for what Jesus Christ has done. Thank you that it is finished. That there's nothing to add to it. But thank you also, Lord, that in everything we do, even our suffering, in everything we do, Lord, we, uh, we share with Christ in his purpose for coming to earth, that we might point others to him, that we might know him more and make him known, that we might grow and multiply as disciples of Christ. And it is, is it, it's in his matchless, glorious, and mighty name that we ask your grace for these things. Amen.